When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hacking to save the world. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Joseph Men, journalist, author, and investigative technology reporter at Reuters. Welcome, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Give us a quick summary of your professional background and what motivated you to get into tech journalism and specifically security. Well, let's see. I uh, I guess you could say I'm a classically trained journalist. I started out. Uh, covering uh, night the, on the night police beat in a small town in North Carolina, um, and uh, and and worked my way up. So I was at the uh, the Charlotte newspaper for five years, um, and then uh, I worked for. I wanted to do investigative stuff. That's the the part I really enjoy finding out stuff that's important that people don't know about, and then tell them. Um, but lots of people wanted to be investigative. Uh, journalists and it's, it's super competitive. So I thought if I could specialize in something like business, uh, where a lot of the coverage was not very deep, um, then I could, it'd be easier for me to get a job uh, investigating. So I started covering business news uh, for the Charlotte paper and then went to what at the time was a, a, a unknown startup called Bloomberg um, way back in the day. Um, uh, and um, I got to do investigate businesses, and um, and that was fun. Um, and then uh, I got a job with the uh, the Los Angeles Times, uh, and so I started covering tech for them out in San Francisco um, in 1999. So I've been a tech journalist since then, uh, so more than 20 years now, and. I gravitated pretty quickly towards uh, security, cybersecurity and hacking, um, really from the beginning as at least part of what I did. Uh, it's been all of what I do really um, for the last 10 years or, or more, um, but it was always at least part. And I found it super interesting because um, it sort of crossed lines. It was a business story and often a criminal justice story uh, and a, a story about technology and technology not working the way it was designed to. And, and you know, I saw it becoming more and more a geopolitical story. Um, and so it was interesting because it crossed all those lines and most people wouldn't tell you what was really going on. There was this real disconnect between um, hackers uh, who, who really understood the way things were working and the big giant companies with the, the slick PR machines that didn't want you to worry about, you know, didn't want you to worry your pretty head about, you know, how vulnerable uh, your stuff was on the internet. So um, it's, it seemed to me there was kind of a public service role in explaining that to a lay audience and, and to investors too. You've written extensively about uh, cybersecurity. In fact, your latest book, Cult of the Dead Cow is an extensive review of one of the oldest and most respected, in fact, I would say most famous American hacking groups. How and when did the cult get started? So they go all the way back to uh, the mid 80s. Um, and at the time, it was you know, a bunch of teenagers 
many of whom had seen uh, the early sort of movie about um, hacking called War Games um, and said, well, there's cool things I can, I can do with this thing called a modem. Uh, and um, it, it, was, it was sort of self-selecting because it was a real pain to get online uh, in those days. And your parents either had to be rich or you had so they could afford the multi-hundred dollar phone bill. Um, or to connect to, to bulletin boards, or you had to have some sort of university access, um, or uh, you know, a parent who worked at a big tech company and you could go to his office or something, or her office. Um, but really what happened was they, they traded credit card numbers and calling card numbers. And so one of the interesting things about it is that basically everybody was a criminal um, in, in the early days. And so like now, if you look at if you see a CTO at a giant, you know, you know, Fortune 100 company, who's, you know, in there is roughly 50 years old now. At one point, they were a criminal, <laughs> and um, that's interesting. Uh, it, it means, among other things, that um, you're used to making your own sort of risk assessments and and moral calls, and sometimes that comports with the law, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and so you would have people who thought it was like more okay to steal from a big company like AT&T, like steal phone service from them than to steal from a little old lady down the street. Um, uh, and, you know, you had all these, everybody drew their own moral lines. And that became more important as, as the internet uh, reached more people and you know, security became something that everybody needed to care about, as opposed to just the sort of elite crew of early, uh, early hackers. So, Cult of Dead Cow morphed several times. It was initially kind of like the liberal arts wing of the hacker underground, and they they wrote these funny text files that were hosted on bulletin boards, um, and they distributed them to anybody who might be think they were funny. Um, but they were often um, they were they were like hit. And um, so over time, they attracted people with actual technical minds, um, the people that they sort of had aspired to be in the beginning. And you wound up with people from groups like The Loft, who are, who are super technically proficient, uh, people like uh, uh, Mudge, uh, Peter Zatko, who would go on to run cybersecurity grant making at DARPA, is now, as we speak, the head of security at Twitter, um, and, you know, also worked at Google and, and lots of other uh, places. And people like uh, Chris Rue, whose uh, hacker handle was Dildog, who co-founded Vericode, um, the early code analysis firm, now worth a billion dollars. Um, um, these people uh, were, uh, were much more um, technically savvy and they sort of combined with the sort of performance art high, hijinks part of the cult of the dead cow. Um, to have the, just like this huge impact inside hacker culture and then in the outside world, which is what they're trying to do, just make the place safer. You mentioned text files. What role did writing essays play in cult membership? Well, not every, so they would publish their own files that they wrote, um, and, but they would also publish outsiders uh, who just sent something in over the transom. Um, and you know, if you wanted to be in, it was like it was like a necessary precursor to being invited to join the group. So you had to write some text files in order to to get sort of drafted. And their their rule was that you they would not accept anybody who who actually asked to join because they didn't want to be hounded. They they got to be so popular that like basically all of their friends and strangers would 
bombard them with requests to join. So like the one rule is you can never ask to join the cultivated cat. They could only ask you. So, and back then, I mean, hacking was an all male endeavor. How did the cult break new ground in this area? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so most of the hacking groups back then in the 80s and, and 90s were, were all guys. Um, that, that's who they know. Those were um, most of the early adopters. And then there was, you know, there was some like, I don't know, girls are scary stuff. Because, you know, we're basically talking about teenagers here. Um, and um, there, uh, there was a woman uh, who was asked to join uh, pretty early. And the person that brought her in, um, who used the handle Psychedelic Del Quarlode, um, <clears throat> was later uh, revealed by me uh, to be Beto O'Rourke, who at that time was running for president. So Beto O'Rourke was not only um, the, uh, an early and influential member of the most important hacking group in US history, he also was the one that gender integrated it, um, which is, uh, I, I, super interesting. We never even had a, a presidential candidate who was a hacker before, let alone a member of an elite group like this, let alone somebody who who, who uh, integrated it in, uh, in terms of gender. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What is it about Microsoft Windows that, that drew their attention? How did Microsoft even respond to that? So this was another really big turning point uh, in the internet as a whole and, and, and the cult prediction. So in, um, in Windows 95, uh, Microsoft bundled in TCP IP um, so that suddenly anybody with the world's most popular operating system uh, could get online pretty easily. Uh, but they did not include really any um, safety features. And there was like a mass marketing campaign with like Rolling Stones, you know, they licensed Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones. And it was like, it was huge. It was huge news when Windows 95 came out. And, um, and one of the aspects of it was that, hey, you could go get online and go do things. Um, and <clears throat> suddenly what had been, you know, the cult of the de dead cow people and their brethren in the loft had been issuing security advisors to general public and to software buyers saying, you know, hey, there's a there's a flaw in this program, you should fix this, you should fix that. Um, but it was it was, you know, at basically businesses that bought software. It wasn't something that consumers had to worry about. And suddenly, like consumers needed to worry about this stuff. And the the cult of the dead cow figured it had to sort of level up to get the word out to them because Microsoft wouldn't listen to them. So the way they did that was to get publicity because the only, the only thing that Microsoft at that time would take seriously was you know, a reporter with a microphone and a camera you know, working for a big network or maybe the New York Times saying, you know, gosh, these guys say your stuff is, is totally riddled with holes and anyone can take it over. So uh, the two big things that they did um, were that they released a, a program called Back Orifice, which was a 
a foul play on um, on back office, which was Microsoft Business Software. Um, and that was a Trojan that allowed anybody to take over a Windows box. And at DEF CON, uh, the, you know, the epicenter of, of, of hackerdom in 1998, um, they threw CDs into the crowd with copies of back orifice. And like, you know, anybody could go hack a box. And they knew that a lot of innocent people were going to get owned because now a script kitty could do it as opposed to somebody who had some skill. But on the other hand, they knew that by making it a spectacle um, in, in Vegas with like major media coverage, they would force Microsoft to do something about it. And Microsoft was a monopoly. So there was very little leverage that anybody had over the company except publicity. So they, they, they went to kind of the circus route. What did cult members accomplish in the 20th century? the echoes of which still reverberate through the 21st century internet and cybersecurity policy? <clears throat> well, they brought forward so many things. So in, in the beginning, you know, with, I mean, the, the, there's overlap with the loft. There are four members of the loft who are also in clubs that did count. Uh, and the loft guys um, create, created coordinated disclosure, which is still, you know, still how security flaws get disclosed today. You know, they, you coordinate with the vendor, uh, so you don't like just drop it on the world um, without giving the vendor a chance to fix it. But there's kind of a there's usually a deadline so that they can't just bury it. Um, this is a, it evolved in multiple ways with bug bounty programs and the like. But um, uh, you know they 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 sort of drove that. Um, they uh, they invented um, hacktivism, which is which they, they coined the phrase. I mean there was politically aware hacking before that, but they coined the phrase hacktivism which has had an enormous impact um, over the years. So in sort of in the, in the nonprofit world, um, you, you, you have all these people that work on open source projects that uh, are about human rights. And that's, that's where the Cult of the Cow got, or Cult of the Dead Cow got more political. They tied uh, hacktivism, they invented hacktivism and tied it to human rights. So that might mean breaking censorship software in China, uh, or it, it might mean uh, protecting the phones or other devices of, of activists, uh, political dissidents, minorities in various places around the world. It can mean a lot of different things. And others have sort of taken that banner and run with it, uh, anonymous famously uh, in the OOs uh, and, uh, and, and after 2010 as well. And more recently, there have been these, these breaches of places like, well, this week there was uh, some hackers uh, broke into an Iranian prison and stole videos that showed brutality and posted it online. Um, you, there previously there was waves against Gab, a, you know, popular right-wing um, uh, social network where they got people's private messages and gave them to some researchers and vetted journalists instead of just dumping them out. Um, but there's a the hacker. There's a, all the hacktivism goes back to CDC. Um, on the on sort of the government side, um, they they sort of bridged the gap between hackers and the government. I mean, there are always some hackers who are working for NSA, for CIA, um, but they made it much easier. When Mudge was at DARPA, he started something called the the Cyber Fast Track, so that instead of you know these grant proposals and IBM gets an extra ten million dollars to come up with some you know new cyber weapon. Um, 
it was possible for an individual hacker to get $50,000 and, and, you know, work in a garage uh, with a colleague, say, and come up with something really nifty and get that into government service uh, if they felt like doing that. And in the private sector, probably their biggest influence uh, came from uh, creating a company called At Stake, which was an early consultancy where hackers went into Microsoft or big banks and said, well, this is wrong. This, you know, you're, you know, that you're not thinking about the problem the right way. This is super vulnerable. We can help you fix that. And at stake went on for a number of years. And the diaspora from that included all these great minds, who, including folks who um, are in top security roles at Google and Apple. Um, uh, not one, one, another at stake alum was Alex Stamos, who was chief security officer at uh, Facebook and blew the whistle at Russian disinformation in 2016. Um, Katie Masuris, who's the godmother of bug bounties uh, everywhere, um, got Microsoft and the Pentagon to initiate their first bug bounty programs. Um, there uh, and window window Snyder, uh, who uh, was also a leading security light at in-house at Microsoft and Apple. So at stake created this, you know, all these amazing people and sent them into the world where they've, you know, sort of coached a new generation of people. So really the cult of the dead cow, which is still around today, is still doing stuff um, and now has more than one woman. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the most profound influence has been in their, their sort of training of new generations and inspiration of new generations, um, you know, either in private training or in sort of volunteer activist circles. We love Window. She's been on the show multiple times. Oh yeah. Thank you. Yeah, love her. And and it's a really interesting book. You've really done a great job of explaining the history of of this organization. So, in fact, if somebody wants to get your book, Joseph, what's the best way they can do that? Oh yeah, it's on all the major platforms. Uh, people love the uh, the um, the Audible uh, version. The narrator is really good if that's your thing. Um, and, you know, I love local bookstores. It's also available on the obvious uh, on online um, online platforms. Of course, he doesn't love a local bookstore. And of course, you know, I have it on Audible. Joseph Men, journalist, investigative technology reporter for Reuters and author of Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Group Might Just Save the World. Thanks for joining us, Joseph. Thanks very much. Of course. And I should have, I should have added that I should have added my Twitter handle. Um, I forgot to do that. Um, well, what it, is your Twitter it, handle? It's just at Joseph Mann. So All right. Well, we'll creativity there. <laughs> Thanks again, Joseph. Thank you. And find and subscribe to more of my interviews right here on all the major podcast platforms under the Tanya Hall Innovation Show or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching. <laughs>